Yes. <laughs> hey, I promised that Squidward revival was happening, and there has been more than one person telling me that they wish Squidward would come back. So, like, how could I refuse that? Oh well, welcome to Gore Report, <laughs> <laughs> a true crime podcast. I promise. <laughs> so, hey, everybody, we hope you're having a good day and a good week. And a good <laughs> We are always wishing you the best no matter where you are. And if this is your first time listening to us, then welcome. We're glad to have you. And if you like what you hear or you want to support the show, feel free to drop by and give us a good rating or review. Only if you think we deserve it. Yes, yes. Only if you think we deserve it. That would be super rad. But if not, if you don't really like our vibe, then you can just, just go ahead and, and find another podcast and, and just don't listen to this one and it'll be fine. <laughs> it'll just be fine. Like I said last week, I kind of want to keep things straightforward because there is just a good bit of information to get through. We are at part two of BTK. It has been a ride. It has been a ride, and I promise the ride is not over. At the end of this, it will be, but we have not yet started, so it is far from over. Oh, okay. I was about to say, are you shitting me? Are you telling me that we're going to have another week? Oh, no. That's where my brain went. No, I am staying true with what I said last week. This is only going to be a two-parter. Like, we are not dragging this on (laughs) longer than two weeks. I'm just not going to put myself through that. I'm not going to put any of you through that. But before I dive into everything, I do want to take a quick second to thank some new patrons. We got some new Gorgoats. So thank you to Liv and Trisha for your patron subscription. We greatly appreciate it. Welcome to the Gorgoats. Also, if you can't support us right now, I don't want you to beat yourself up. Don't worry about it. Just as long as you listen. Yeah, you ain't got to give us money of any kind. We're just just happy to have your company. We are very humble and grateful. (laughs) (laughs) But not only do I want to thank the two new patrons, Trisha and Liv, I also just want to give a quick thank you to Jennifer, Christina, Megan, and Stephanie. Yeah, because they were already Gorgoats. And then when the thing happened with our patron and we had to make another page, we already told you guys about that. They resubscribed. So I just wanted to thank everybody in the Gorgoats today. Yes, the thing that we shall not talk about anymore because it was very upsetting and very heartbreaking. Yeah, luckily we got our shit together with this one and there's no like miscommunications or misunderstandings. Everything is just good to go. So for that third time, thank you to all of our Gorgoats. We appreciate each and every one of you. It means the world. So I'm really excited to hear the rest of this story because... Ooh, we I'm not excited to tell it. I'm really like 
excited for the story to be completed, but also like not excited because of how terrible it is. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And unfortunately, this part really isn't going to be much better than part one. Oh, honestly. man. All right. I guess find a thrift store where you can find the nearest car seat so you can buckle in your asshole. <laughs> Just make sure that you buy a swaddling blanket and tuck it in real tight before right. you go. <laughs> Leave the windows down so you can breathe. <laughs> Turn the air on. So as I said earlier, this is indeed the final part of my Dennis Raider coverage. Thank goodness. In part one, we went through a lot. We went through his super uneventful yet super fucking weird childhood. We discussed his occupations and kind of how his life was going up until 1974 when he committed his first murders, which were just horrible. Horrifying. Literally nothing short of evil. Uh, but yeah, we went through the Otero family murders, and we also talked about the murders of his three victims after that, uh, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian, and Nancy Fox. <sighs> after Dennis murdered Nancy, he quit killing for eight years, and I'm picking up right where I left off, so if you haven't listened to part one of this case, I highly recommend that you do that. There's a lot of information that I don't want you to miss. Go! So Go now! Go! Go! Turn back! Go! Go! Turn back! Go now! (laughs) So, with that being said, we can unfortunately continue onwards. Yay! Uh, Yay! We're going to hell some more! Where we left off in part one, Dennis had murdered Nancy Fox in her home. And when the publicity wasn't as flashy as he wanted it to be... He sent a copy of his Shirley Locks poem to the Wichita Eagle, only to get no response. And if we've learned anything about Dennis Rader at this point, it's that he loves publicity. He loves attention. I'm sorry, I wasn't laughing about, like, the, the that fact, but I was laughing at the fact that, like, you can't even do that right. <laughs> yeah, he just got no response and got no response. So, just so butthurt over it. He really, really loved attention. You're just going to see that time and time again. So when he didn't get a response from this, it led him to send another one of his letters to the Wichita Eagle and to the Cake TV news station. In this four-page letter, he included horrific details regarding the murders of the Oteros, Shirley Vian, and Nancy. He included a picture of a bound and gagged woman. And let's not forget about his next wonderful poem that he included, uh, Oh Death to Nancy. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he was when really... he was, like, ripping off the song, Odeth. Yes, he was really trying to get some sort of reaction. So during the next eight years after he murdered Nancy, as I said, Dennis quit killing. And I brought this up in part one, how that's one of the many things that makes Dennis such an unusual case. Like, mm-hmm. he truly is an outlier in this way. He could control his impulses, and he did, for very long stretches of time. So you look at killers such as Bundy, Gacy, Dahmer, and you see at some point they couldn't control the urge to kill. Eventually they got sloppy because that urge was just too overbearing. Right. And that's not the case with Dennis. He just stopped and he didn't seem to struggle with it too much. And that is the scariest thing in the world to me. It is very scary. If not, you know, the scariest, um, that scary thing being that someone that has this much of a psychopathic, homicidal, 
personality, someone that's truly violent and evil, in my opinion, right. they have that side of themselves and they do this crazy shit, but then they can walk right back into normal life, mundane life. And they can function and put on this totally different face. A mask. A mask, basically. And that is really, really scary. Like, that's something that really terrifies me about killers, about people that do things like this that off and on. It's crazy. And I also brought this up in part one briefly, where I talked about how Dennis would dress himself up in clothing items such as nightgowns, women's underwear, wigs. Clothes that he stole from his victims and random people's houses. He also had a, quote, woman's mask that he'd put makeup on. He'd wear all of these things and then he would bind himself with rope. He'd put bags over his head and gags in his mouth and he would pose in various positions. And he had a Polaroid camera that had a squeezy ball attachment. Like, oh, yeah, like the. okay, so. If you don't know what he's talking about, basically, it's like a shutter that you click. And it takes the picture. Yeah. Right. But he had this, and when he would pose himself, he would keep the squeezy ball in his hand, and he would hide it, you know, within the rope or something like that, and he would take pictures of himself. Oh. I actually thought about posting some of those photos of Dennis for you guys to see, but ultimately, I decided against it. Uh, I just feel like they're too much. They're definitely a little explicit and in the context of who he is and what he did. Yeah, it's very, very disturbing. So if you want to find those photos for yourself, it's not hard to find. I just I didn't think it would be appropriate for me to post something like that. So we're not going to do that. And on the topic of those pictures, Catherine Ramsland said herself, which if you don't remember who she is from part one, she is a serial killer expert. She's a forensic psychologist and a criminal justice professor at DeSales University. Mm -hmm. And she worked with Dennis for a very long time academically studying him and trying to understand what made him do what he did. Right. So I just wanted to briefly recap if you forgot who she was. But Catherine Ramsland said herself that when Dennis would pose and take these photos, that he was basically embodying his victims. He wanted to pose in the place of a victim And according to Ramsland, Dennis said that when he did this, that it helped him curb his homicidal impulses. So during the long periods of time when he wasn't killing, he was sneaking around his wife's back and taking these pictures. Mm -hmm. And he was, of course, still stalking and trolling, but he didn't kill. But see, that's interesting because him dressing up like that is his own way of revisiting crime scenes. You know what I mean? Yeah, quite literally, he wanted to put himself in the place of a victim. So you're right about that. It's kind of like he was reliving it in a lot of fucked up ways. When Dennis murdered Nancy Fox, it was December of 1977. That following year in 1978, his second child, Carrie, was born. So Dennis said in his own words that fatherhood was a big factor and why he stopped killing for so many years. Mm -hmm. Dennis really liked his identity as a father and a husband. So that's where he put his time. Even though he didn't kill anyone from 1978 to 1985, it doesn't mean that he didn't try. Mm -hmm. So 1979 was a busy year for Dennis. Between being a father, husband, and a student, his plate was full. 1979 was also the year that Dennis Rader graduated from Wichita State University, where he studied criminal justice. 
which, fun fact, Dennis used what he learned studying criminal justice to try and help him with his serial killing. He studied the forensic part of things, you know, how officers processed crime mm-hmm. scenes, what they looked for, things like that. Right. He used that knowledge to his advantage. Oh, that's even scarier. You got a serial killer arming himself with tomes of knowledge. I'm telling you, it's so just fucked. All of this is fucked. (sighs) So the next person in this story I want to introduce you to is Anna Williams. She was 63 years old. And on April 28th, 1979, Anna attended a square dance in town. And then she stopped by her daughter's house for some time to see her before she went home. And when she got home, she saw that someone had clearly broken into her house. She saw that her phone lines were cut. There were a few different wires and cords laying around. And it just completely scared the shit out of her. I mean, like it would anyone. Anyone, yeah. Little did she know that her taking the extra time to go and see her daughter for a few hours that evening saved her life. Literally. Oh, man. And on that day of April 28th, Dennis had been watching her. So he decided to break into her home when she wasn't there. Dennis was hoping that Anna would be his eighth victim. So he breaks in, cuts the phone lines, sets everything up, and then he just sits in her house in the dark. (gasps) Just waiting for her to come home. Oh, no. No. Mm -mm. Yeah, I'm Mm -mm. telling you. But after several hours of just sitting in the empty house without her coming, Dennis grew impatient and agitated, and he just said, fuck it, and left. So again, her making that extra stop literally saved her life. I am forever visiting all of my friends before I go home. What the hell? I'm telling you. (laughs) What? So two months after that, in June of 1979... Anna received a package that was made out to her deceased husband. And in this package, she found a piece of jewelry and a scarf that belonged to her, like from her house. <gasps> Ooh, I do like this. Right. She also found drawings of several bound and gagged women. And in this package, can you take a guess at what Dennis left? Just take a guess. Um, I don't know, the female mask or something? Another wonderful poem. Oh, God. Dennis wrote a poem to Anna titled, quote, Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? End quote. What? <laughs> I told you we weren't done reading his poetry. What? Like, we are not done reading his poems. That's like, oh, where'd you go? <laughs> it's literally so dumb. So I'm going to read this poem to you. It's fucking ridiculous. Well, you know, with a title like that, how could it not be ridiculous? I'm telling you, you are just, I cannot even describe it. Why didn't you appear? So the poem, Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Twas perfect plan of deviant pleasure so bold on that spring night. My inner feeling hot with propension of the new awakening season. Warm with inner fear and rapture. My pleasure of entanglement, like new vines at night. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Drop of fear, fresh spring rain would roll down from your nakedness to scent to lofty fever that burns within. In that small world of longing, fear, rapture, and desperation, the game we play, fall on devil's ears. Fantasies spring forth, 
mounts to storm fury, then winter clam at the end. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Alone, now in another time span, I lay with my sweet and rapture garments across most private thought. Bed of spring moist grass, clean before the sun, enslaved with control, warm winds scenting the air, sunlight sparkled tears in eyes so deep and clear. Alone again I trod and passed memory of mirrors, and ponder why for number eight was not. Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? I didn't understand a fucking word, but it was terrifying the entire time. (laughs) Was he using big words just because he wanted to sound smart? You said first thing about that poem, I understood fucking nothing. Second thing about that poem, it was awful. It was awful. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a terrible, terrible poem, and I can't stand it. So... Dennis had broke into this woman's home, waited for hours, steals some of her jewelry and a scarf, which he then mails back to her two months later along with this poem. Could you imagine standing there reading this cacophony of fuck all? (laughs) Like, is cacophony a word? Oh, yeah. That is such a fascinating sounding word. What does that mean? I I need to know. It was really just like the only word that I could think of that described that poem. But but yes, I can tell you what it means. Do tell. Hey, Siri. Hi there. What does cacophony mean? Cacophony means a harsh discordant mixture of sounds. Oh, yeah. That's definitely what that poem was, I think. (laughs) That's definitely what that was, a cacophony. Yeah. We all and, just learned a new word. Yeah, well, I I can tell you big words like cacophony, but I have the mind of a goldfish, and I had to ask Siri what the definition was. So, <laughs> you know, take it, take from it what you will. And it touches on just another thing, another part of Raider's psyche. Even when he didn't actually kill people, he still got the utmost satisfaction out of mentally torturing people. Him sending this woman her own stuff, along with a poem he wrote about why she didn't appear to him, he just got the biggest thrill out of that. He knew that this was, of course, going to absolutely scare the shit out of this woman, and he took pride in it. Audacity on sale. At that point, he didn't even care that he didn't kill her. He was just taking pleasure in terrorizing her. That same package that he sent to Anna... He sent copies of the same poem and drawings to Cake TV. He wanted both Anna and the news station to receive his poem and drawings. That is like, like I said, audacity is definitely on sale. (laughs) You have no idea. You have no idea. So in 1983, when Dennis was 38 years old, his then 10-year-old son Brian became a Boy Scout and Dennis became a Scout leader. And Dennis used his position as a scout leader to sneak out and troll. This little tidbit of information is going to come back around, I promise. So just keep that in your mind. Okay. Within two years after becoming a scout leader in 1985, Dennis decided who his next victim was going to be. And it was one of his neighbors. Oh, no. 53-year-old Marine Hedge. Dennis and Marine had lived on the same block for several years at this point. And one day, Dennis was just out and about trolling, and he noticed Maureen in her garden, tending to her flowers. And Dennis had this bright, just click in his brain 
that he also loved gardening. And he just decided right then and there that he had to kill her. Well, uh, okay, we went from interest to murder. Yes. He said himself that as he watched Maureen tending to her flower bed, that he imagined his hands around her throat, and that was just all he needed. He got excited, and he started planning. And it's very sad. Dennis even recalled that oftentimes he would walk by Maureen's house and just smile and wave at her. Oh, yeah. And he called this plan, quote, Project Deflower, which he made up because of the way he noticed her tending to her flowers, and he also liked gardening. Get get the fuck out of here. I'm going home. Right. Right. It is absolutely just horrible. I guess the story is just shocking to me, and he is disgusting to me because it's just the sheer mixture of violence and sex against women. I mean... We've touched on that many times. That seems to be a common theme with most killers. But, I mean, it's awful. He literally saw this woman who was his neighbor. And just because and she of this. wasn't doing anything but, you And know. just because of this weird gardening thing, he just saw her tending to flowers. He imagined strangling her. And that was all he needed to fixate on her. And if there's one thing to know about Dennis Rader, if he fixated on you, you were done. That was it. Like, he made up his mind right then and there. And he was going to kill you. Dennis noticed after some stalking that Maureen seemed to live alone, although she did have a male friend that would come visit her often. He just didn't live at the house, but he was in and out quite a bit. And very sadly, on April 27th, 1985, Dennis claimed the life of his eighth victim. Fuck. That day, Dennis was at a scout meeting with the Boy Scouts. And that evening, he told the other scout leaders that he had to go to bed early that night because he was having a headache. But Dennis actually didn't go to bed early that night. And I don't know if this is going to surprise you or not, but he lied. (laughs) He lied. He lied. He fucking lied. Instead of going to bed early, Dennis actually drove to a bowling alley. He had parked his car at the top of a hill that was near the scout camp so he could leave and come back unnoticed. He got to his car. He changed out of his scout leader uniform into some casual clothes. He pretended to bowl for a bit, and then he got a beer. He swished the beer in his mouth, spit some of it on his shirt, and even splashed a little on his face because he was trying to make himself appear as if he was drunk. So after doing all of this, he called a cab to come and pick him up. Uh. Again, he's just trying to come across as this really super drunk guy who was bowling and just needed a ride home. So he takes a cab, and halfway through the ride, Dennis tells the driver that he needed to get out and get some air and walk the drunk off, basically. Uh So the cab stopped, let him out, And Dennis walked to Maureen's house. When he gets to her place, he sees that she's not there. So he goes ahead and he cuts the phone line and he breaks in. Uh. Yeah. And within minutes of him being in her house, he hears a car pull up in the driveway. He looks out and sees that it's Maureen and her male friend that I talked about earlier. His name is Gerald Porter. Oh, my God. So Dennis runs into one of the bedrooms And he hides inside the fucking closet. No. How scary is that? What is this, a horror movie? Right. So Maureen gets home. She has Gerald with her. They're talking, hanging out, just enjoying their time together in her home. And neither of them knew that Dennis Rader was watching them from the closet. That absolutely just makes me fucking sick to think about. And he was in the closet for a good bit of time, too. After Maureen got home... Her and Gerald hung out for over an hour, and then he left. Maureen then sat up for a bit. She got ready for bed. 
went to her room and eventually fell asleep. And Dennis was watching her this entire time, just sitting and waiting. My asshole is gone. He waited for a bit of time after she fell asleep to make sure that she was asleep. Uh-huh. And then he just walks into her room and turns her bathroom light on. Mm. Which this made Marine wake up and scream immediately. And that just hurts my soul because I just could not imagine being woken up in the middle of the night because a stranger turned on my fucking bathroom light. Like that is just, that is so, so scary. Especially like when you live at home alone. Right. And then on top of that, she recognized him. Yeah. So it's it's just like this whole bundle of like, what the fuck is going on? So Maureen freaked out. She woke up. She's screaming. And before she can even react or get out of bed or do anything, Dennis ran, jumped on top of her, and he strangled her to death with his hands, with his bare hands. After Dennis killed Maureen, he stripped her naked and he placed her body on a blanket and he also handcuffed her hands behind her back. He went and got a glass of water because we all know that's his thing. He yeah. loves to drink a glass of water at the crimes. What a thirsty ass bitch. And then he stole Marine's driver's license for his hidey hole. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the fucking hidey hole. And then he came up with a great idea all of a sudden. He decided that with this murder, he wanted to change his M.O. a bit. This time... He wanted to take the body out of the house. So he put Marine's body in the trunk of her own car, and he took her to the Christ Lutheran Church. And this shit stain also said later that moving a dead body was way harder than he thought it would be. He said in his own words, quote, This was the first time I had ever actually moved a body. I worried about my back as I lifted her out of the trunk. Oh, 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 yeah. I'm glad you're worried about your back, Dennis. That's that's fucking great. So since Dennis was a well-represented and active member of the Christ Lutheran Church, he had keys to the church. So Dennis took Marine into the basement of the church, and he posed her body in various positions where he could then take several pictures of her. And get this shit, Dennis made it a point later to say that even though he murdered this woman and took her body into the church basement, that he still didn't disrespect God. He said, quote, I did not use the altar. I was bad and disturbed, but I still had respect for some items of God's house. End quote. What? Like, whoa. <laughs> like, I, that shit almost made my heart stop. I was just like, Dennis, like, where the fuck is your mind at, my guy? Like, what do you mean? Right. Like, what do you mean you didn't use the altar, therefore you still respect God? Like, are you fucking kidding me? You brought a dead body in a church bro right <laughs> you killed someone and brought their body to the church oh but he's still a great outstanding citizen because oh, he, did, he didn't you. use the altar i'm telling you he didn't use the altar i wonder if he prayed afterward Th that's the key you just you, you can't use the altar <laughs> that's the loophole <laughs> fuck so after dennis posed marine and all of these different positions and he took all of these pictures of her in the basement of this church he loads her body back up and then he dumps her in a ditch on a dirt road that was a few miles from where she lived dennis then abandoned her car at the bowling alley he went to beforehand he grabbed his own car and he went back to the scout camp because let me remind you just in case you forgot he did all of this during a boy scout trip that he was supposed to help chaperone and he was just like 
I'm going to dip out for a couple hours. Yeah, and he went and did all of that and then came back. God. So what did he do with, like, the clothes? He changed. Like he, he changed back into, like, the Boy Scout outfit, yes. and he went back. Yes. Like, nothing happened. You're absolutely correct. So the next day after that, when Marine didn't go into work, a welfare check was called in for her. And when officers got to the home, they found that Marine and her car were nowhere to be found. So this sparked a really big search. Marine's car was found at a bowling alley soon after she was reported missing. And her body was found in a ditch on May 5th, 1985, just a few days after she was killed. Oh, my God. After this murder, Dennis didn't write into the police or the Wichita Eagle. He didn't write one of his fancy smancy poems. He That's didn't, shocking. Yeah, he didn't want to attract attention to himself because Marine was his neighbor. So he didn't want to insert himself in any way to her murder because he didn't want a full-blown BTK investigation happening right down from his house. That's why he changed his M.O. It was too close to home. Like, literally too close to home. (laughs) (sighs) So he stayed quiet after this one. And unfortunately, him switching up his M.O. like that and not writing the authorities or, you know, just doing any of his usual things... It threw the police for a loop. Right. They didn't think it was BTK because the MO is different. Right. There were some officers that commented that BTK was in the back of their minds when it came to a possible suspect for this crime Mm -hmm. because he hadn't yet been caught, obviously. But since everything was just so different to the known BTK murders, they didn't suspect him. Instead, Marine's friend, Gerald Porter, became the prime suspect because to the knowledge of the police, he was the last he person was the to last... see her alive. Oh, my God. So he even had a scapegoat. Do you think he planned that? I hon- Knowing Dennis, I honestly don't think he did because he just fumbled into everything that he did. I truly don't think he f- thought that far ahead. But unfortunately, that's how it worked out. And it's oh, very fucked up. man. On September 16th, 1986, Dennis claimed the life of his ninth victim, 28-year-old Mother of two, Vicky Weggerly. Dennis had watched Vicky for weeks before he killed her. He loved the fact that her front porch was kind of closed off and it didn't really show her front door, so that kind of made him excited. But he also loved the fact that Vicky played piano, because oftentimes while walking past her house, he would hear a piano playing, and he loved the music, so he fixated on her super heavily, and he called this his PJ project. I'm so sick of your fucking project. I'm telling you. Around 10 a.m. on the day of September 16th, 1986, Dennis dressed himself up as a telephone repairman. He made his own logo. He had a helmet, vest, fake tools, everything. He really put a lot of effort into this. So he knocked on Vicky's door. She answered. Dennis asked if he could test her phone lines, and she let him in. She had her toddler in a playpen in the living room. No. I, be- I believe the baby was around two years old. So Dennis comes in, Vicky shows him where the phone is, and he takes out a fake tool that he had, and he pretended to mess with the phone line for a bit. And Dennis said that after Vicky looked away to check on her child, he cut it. He pulled out his 25 caliber handgun and he pointed it at her. And when Vicky saw the gun, she immediately started crying and freaking out. I mean, understandably. Vicky told Dennis that her husband was going to be back any minute because he was supposed to be home for his lunch break. And Vicky also asked what he was planning to do with her child. Because, again, this poor two-year-old is just in this playpen watching all of this happen. And her first thought was immediately, what the fuck are you going to do to my kid? Sad. Very sad. At gunpoint, 
Dennis forced Vicky into the back bedroom and he told her that he was going to tie her up. And according to Dennis, Vicky fought him hard, very hard. She was actually able to scratch Dennis up pretty badly. She got him across his nose and everything. Good. She really put up a fight. And even though Vicky was trying her hardest, and I just, I hate this so much, but Dennis unfortunately overpowered her. He grabbed a nylon stocking that belonged to Vicky and he wrapped it around her neck, strangling her to death. And he did this in broad daylight, like 10, 11 in the morning. Oh, my. Uh. He also opened up her blouse and pulled her pants down after she died. And he took a couple of photos with his camera. Dennis stole some things from the house, including Vicky's driver's license for his hidey hole. And then he left to go back to work. Vicky's child was left in the playpen crying, only feet away from Vicky's body. And I hate this, but when Vicky told Dennis that her husband was going to be home soon, it turns out that wasn't a bluff. That was the truth. So Bill Weggerly was the one to come into their home. He found his child screaming in the playpen and his wife dead with stalking wrapped around her throat. He frantically got the stalking out from around her neck and then he called 911. And sadly, just like in the case of Maureen Hedge, Bill Weggerly became the main suspect in Vicky's murder for some time. Oh my God. Dennis yet again got away with murder. And just like he did again with the Marine Hedge murder, he stayed quiet after this one. No letters, no poems, no mail to the police or news station, none of that. And this helped him elude police, unfortunately. And after he murdered Vicky, Dennis stopped killing for another five years. But two years after the murder of Vicky, in 1988, Dennis got laid off from his job at ADT Security. Dennis tried to become a police officer, but every single department rejected him. <laughs> so he went on. Oh, wait, hold on. I got to rethink that for a second. You have a serial killer wanting to become a cop. Yeah, he wanted to abuse that power. That was something Dennis will tell you he wanted to do. He wanted to be in law enforcement. Constantly abusing power. He wanted to have that power over people. Oh, it just gets worse. So he tried to become a police officer. All of the departments rejected him. They were like, fuck you. No. <laughs> so after that, he went on to work as a census field operations supervisor for the census department in Wichita. And this job allowed him to travel a lot. He was out of town all the time and he was basically living in hotels. So Dennis used this abundance of alone time to have what he called motel parties. Basically, he had dolls that he would practice tying up. He would do this whole erotic asphyxiation thing on himself he was wearing his mask his nightgowns and underwear and he was tying himself up with rope tape handcuffing himself just all of this crazy shit and he was taking photos of himself while doing all of this like very fucking weird he was having lots of motel parties like he did this by himself dennis ended up losing his job at the census department in the summer of 1990 and this kind of left him feeling belittled and butthurt and he went back to trolling and prowling. Only this time, Dennis decided that he wanted to target an older woman. He felt as if younger women put up more of a fight, and he also thought that younger women were more likely to have husbands at home, which he didn't want. So he set his sights on 62-year-old Dolores Davis. She would be the 10th and final victim of Dennis Rader. Dolores worked as an executive secretary in Wichita for several years, and then she moved out to the Park City area where Dennis lived. So while Dennis was out and about trolling, he spotted her, fixated on her, and that was it. He started planning. 
and for the second time, he used the Boy Scouts to help him commit this murder. Over the weekend of January 19, 1991, the Scouts were having an annual winter campout event at Harvey County Park West, and Dennis was chaperoning as one of the Scout leaders. Dennis said that he made it to camp early that day to set everything up, and then when the other Scout leaders and the Scouts and everyone started arriving, he said he had another headache and that he had to leave to go back into town to pick up some things, and he left. So after he left the camp, he drove out to his parents' house in North Wichita. His parents weren't home because they were on vacation. So Dennis used their house to change out of his scout leader getup into what he called his hit clothes. Ugh. He then drove his car to a local Baptist church. He parked and then he set out on foot to the home of Dolores Davis. And it was after 11 p.m. that he got there. Dolores had just gotten home not long before Dennis got there because she had a dinner date with the guy she was talking to. Fuck. So Dennis just waited outside of her house watching her, and he watched her until she went to sleep, and then he waited for some time after that again to make sure that she was asleep. But this time he didn't break into the house with normal methods, like the things that he usually did. He took a totally different approach. Okay. He was rushed for time because he knew that he had to get back to the scout camp. So he decided, oh, well, I know just the way to make this a lot quicker and more efficient. He walked around her house until he found a cement block. And then he chunked it through her patio door, busting the glass. Oh. He just threw this block through this woman's door. Like, did not give a fuck. Did not give a fuck. Wow. The crash from the glass breaking caused Dolores to get up and she rushed to the door to see what happened. Yeah. Initially, it was so loud she thought that a car had crashed into her house. But that wasn't the case. She was instead confronted by Dennis Rader. And he was saying the same exact shit to her that he had used countless times before. He said that he was a criminal on the run and that he needed food and money. He forced her into her own bedroom and he attempted to have conversation with her to calm her down, which surprise didn't fucking work. So Imagine he that, tried Dennis. to go right back to the comfort tactics. Yes, absolutely. So Dolores tried fighting Dennis off, but he overpowered her. Again, this poor woman was 62 years old. Like, yeah. I just, I just hate this man. I hate him so fucking much. But he overpowered her. He snatched her phone line out of the wall and then he laid her on her stomach. And then he tied her hands to her ankles and he strangled her to death with her own pantyhose. Dennis claimed that the entire time he was doing this, that all Dolores could do was cry and beg him not to kill her. After Dennis killed Dolores, he was in a hurry. So he didn't take any photos of her at that moment. Instead, he loaded her up into the trunk of her own car and then he took her and dumped her near a lake. Dennis noticed after he dumped Dolores that he didn't have his gun on him. Just like he did with the Oteros, he left it at the crime scene. So he went back to her house, found his gun, stole some personal things such as some clothing, a camera, a jewelry box, and her driver's license for his hidey hole. And then he went back to her body, loaded her up in the trunk again, and dumped her under a bridge in Sedgwick County. And then he returned to the scout camp as if nothing happened. Wow. It would be the next day that a missing persons report for Dolores Davis was put in by her boyfriend, the guy she was seeing. Yeah. I'm so sorry about the low commentary, but I am so blown. Yeah, like, it's I'm... insane. It is insane. It is fucking insane. Like, Man. 
as stupid as he is and as much as we can roast him and as much as I will roast him, he was fucking scary. Like, this shit is truly scary. The fact that he just casually is just out here doing this shit. Gage, I did not find a car seat for my asshole. It's gone. (laughs) It's on the the other side of the interstate. (laughs) It, It got ejected. Right. I'm struggling pretty bad, too. I it's promise. It's just gone. I need compensation for my ass. <laughs> the very next night after he did all of that, murdered Dolores and then dumped her at a lake, went back to her house, got right. his gun, dumped her under a bridge. That next night, he snuck out of the camp again to go and photograph Dolores's body. He said that he had a headache yet again and he just had to leave so everyone let him go and on his way back to the scout camp from photographing Dolores he stopped at a rest stop to change his clothes and while doing this a state trooper came into the rest stop and he stopped Dennis and asked a couple of questions he was Uh like you know there was a crime nearby that happened we're looking for people who may have something to do with it people that are a little suspicious and Dennis described in his own words that this experience scared the shit out of him because he thought that was the moment he was going to get caught. Yeah. He At that moment when this happened, he had Dolores's jewelry box and clothes and, and camera license. in his car. Yeah. So if that trooper would have asked to see his car and search his car, he would have been fucked right then and there. But Dennis explained that he was a scout leader on his way back to the scout camp thing that he was chaperoning and that his son was a Boy Scout and the trooper let him go. He was like, you know what? Clearly, you're you're not anybody we're looking for. So they let him go. You know what this reminds me of? Have you ever seen the movie The House That Jack Built? I haven't, actually. This whole story reminds me of that movie. If you haven't seen that movie, please go watch it. It's amazing. But Yeah, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen this it. This whole story screams The House That Jack Built. We might have to watch that after we're done with this, maybe, if you want. For sure. (laughs) For sure, because it's a great movie. So, yeah, Dennis had this encounter with the state trooper. They let him go, and he went back to the scout camp, pretending that nothing had happened. So in the years after murdering Dolores, Dennis stayed busy upholding his seemingly normal facade. He continued to raise his children. He continued working for the scouts. He continued being a member of Christ Lutheran, just all of it. Just a few months after murdering Dolores in 1991, he got a new job as a compliance officer in Park City, and he kept this job up until his arrest in 2005. And there are many locals from Park City in that time period that can today recall how much of a dick officer Dennis was. Him getting this compliance officer job really satisfied his ego, Mm -hmm. even if it was very minor things, because... A compliance officer is like someone who enforces local code. Yeah. You know, like he was going around. Code enforcement. Code enforcement, basically. But that didn't matter to Dennis. In his mind, he was now a part of law enforcement, even though he wasn't an actual police officer. So he had this little bit of power to abuse, and he became a complete dick about it. And there's so many people that can recall that. It made Dennis feel superior to everyone else. And evidently... Dennis was such a fucking asshole that several people ended up moving out of Park City completely. It was that bad. He was going around. He was going around to people's yards, measuring their grass with a fucking ruler and then writing citations like shit like that. Just being a complete fucking dick, like complete dick. 
again, it's the superiority, God complex, narcissistic fucking... It's crazy. I'm, he just, he really loved going around making sure grass was cut. He loved it. I mean... <clears throat> But even though Dennis had his plate full with being a compliance officer, plus a husband, plus a dad, plus a scout leader, he still used what little free time he had to prowl and troll. He what was, the fuck does this guy's schedule look like? like? Right. He was still picking out projects. He was still stalking people and even breaking into homes during this time. He just didn't actually kill anyone else after Dolores. Like, breakfast with the wife and kids, go out stalking and trolling, maybe some B&E, breaking and entering, maybe some cutting some phone lines, I don't know. Go back you know, home like, for lunch, make sure everybody's chill, like I'm telling you. Right, and then go back out and auto-asphyxiate or whatever the fuck motel you're Motel parties, having right. motel parties, squeezing my stress balls, strengthening my hands. <laughs> Crazy shit. So... From 1991 to 2004, he just kind of remained under the radar. He was just living his life, just kind of, you know, taking it back a little bit. So continuing on, January 15th, 2004, that marked the 30th anniversary of the Otero family murders. And on that day, the Wichita Eagle ran an article in their newspaper about a book that was being written about the unsolved BTK murders. This book was by an author named Robert Beattie. I think that last name I got right. But uh, this book was supposed to cover seven murders. But Dennis saw this and it angered him because he knew he had killed more than seven people. Right. And he didn't want anyone telling his story wrong. He didn't want anyone miscrediting him. Nah, if you're going to tell my story, you're going to tell all of it. But also, he just didn't want anyone telling his story, period. He wanted to tell it himself. So this temper tantrum led Dennis to send a package to the Wichita Eagle. And this was his first correspondence with the Wichita Eagle in 25 years. The, the period of time between him sending this to when he sent his last poem, 25 years. Could you imagine like going 25 years and BTK has just disappeared. People think he's disappeared and people are he, trying to calm people down. People think he's caught. And then just he comes back up like, hey, like motherfuckers. Literally. And people refer to Dennis as the boogeyman. Like, I don't remember what his name was, but uh, one of the officers on this documentary I was watching, he said himself that, like, if you lived in, if you grew up in Kansas in the 70s and 80s, you didn't have the boogeyman. You had BTK, which is like fucking chilling my mom told me that she even remembers btk right so going back this package he sent this was his first communication in 25 years right people were freaking the fuck out he mailed the package on march 17th 2004 using an undercover name bill thomas kilman this is like a bad fucking movie bro <laughs> this is so bad and in this package that he sent he included three Polaroid photos of Vicki Weggerly dead on her floor. And he also included a photocopy of her driver's license. He sent this shit to the Wichita Eagle. And this is only the beginning. Only the beginning. The next clip I have for you guys is from ex-Wichita Eagle editor Sherry Chisenhall. And she was obviously working for the Wichita Eagle when this package was received. Mm -hmm. This audio is being sampled from a interview in the BTK Confessions of a Serial Killer docuseries on YouTube. Mm. I will put links in the show notes because uh, these episodes were another really great resource of mine for this case. Uh, but yeah, this is Sherry telling us what was inside that package. And I'm going to play that for you now. 
my administrative assistant goes through the mail every day and she had gotten a letter that had a photocopy of what appeared to be an old Polaroid. It looked like a, a woman's body on the floor and a copy of a woman's driver's license. The driver's license was Vicki Wegerly's. Her murder had never been tied to BTK. And this package was the first of several packages that he would send leading up to when he got arrested. And for the hundredth time, this truly scared the shit out of everyone. This is the first time BTK has communicated with anybody in over two decades. People thought that maybe he had died or moved away or anything. But for him to send this and just reignite the fear within the community, I mean, it was the ultimate high for him. Right. The Wichita Eagle immediately turned the package and its contents over to the police and the FBI got involved. There was even a task force put together during this specifically for catching BTK. Oh, wow. And you have to think, too, his reign of terror being 30 years from the 70s up until he got arrested in 2005. There were like one or two, maybe even three generations of cops looking for him. Yeah. Like that's how long like that that's how long his his shit went on for and it's just wild you think about the impact of going so long mm-hmm. being dormant and then for him just to bam here I'm BTK did you forget about me hey nope still here right. here's this driver's license here's these photos like no one is safe people really really fucking wigged so on May 5th 2004 Dennis sent another package but this time he sent it to Cake TV He really loved Cake TV because, A, he watched it for so long, but also because they actually gave him attention and covered him, so he really loved it. Right. He sent this next package under the name Thomas B. Kingman, which, again, both of his names is just BTK rearranged in different ways. It's fucking stupid. But in this package, he included a word puzzle that was made up of lots of random letters and numbers, so it's like a word search, basically. Right. And that's another thing to know about Dennis. He loved puzzles and he loved communicating in codes and riddles. So he put this word puzzle together for the news anchors and or police to figure out. Some of the words hidden in this puzzle were ruse, victim, address, serviceman, follow, cruise, handyman, fake ID, remodel, prowl, and fantasies. And there was more than that. That's just to list a few. He also included the numbers 6220 hidden in this puzzle, Mm. which was his house number. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, he lived at 6220 Independent Street in Wichita, I think. So he hid his address in it, which is fucking wild. And then one of the words in that puzzle was address. And he put his numbers for his literal house number in there. Like he was really really going for some shit this is how deranged he was just playing this game with police and authorities it's crazy (laughs) i what (laughs) wait i'm still trying to wrap my freaking head around that okay like (laughs) it's it almost doesn't sound real it almost doesn't seem real i'm telling you it's like the worst topic fever dream that you could ever have in your life That is exactly what this case is, truly. I was even taken back putting this together. I was just like, holy shit, dude. Holy shit. So in that same package with the word puzzle. By the way, I'm surprised that the word trolling wasn't in there. I'm pretty sure it was, stupid (laughs) fuck. 
but also in that same package, he included an outline for telling his story. Like he sent a guide on how to cover him, basically. He even organized everything into chapters and he named this work, quote, the BTK story. <laughs> um, you guys aren't covering me correctly. So here's a little guide, just so in case you need it. Guide. So these were the chapters for his story. He just had the chapter names. Chapter one, a serial killer is born. Chapter two, Dawn. Chapter three, Fetish. Chapter four, Fantasy World. Chapter five, The Search Begins. Chapter six, BTK's Haunts. Chapter seven, PJ's. Chapter eight, M-O-I-D Ruse. Chapter nine, Hits. Chapter 10, Treasured Memories. Chapter 11, Final Curtain Call. Chapter 12, Dusk. And chapter 13, Will There Be More? So on June 9th, 2004, Dennis taped a sandwich bag containing a brown envelope to a random stop sign in Wichita, and someone found it. This envelope contained very graphic type descriptions of the Otero murders, pictures of women that were bound and gagged, and some of the pictures even had captions such as, quote, the sexual thrill is my bill, end quote. And then he also included another copy of his BTK story chapters. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> you said I'm just done. <laughs> yeah, because it's just like... Crazy? One B-rated movie after the after other. After <laughs> another. On Saturday, June 17th, 2004... A bookkeeper at the local library found a package labeled BTK in the bottom of a book return bin, and she called the police immediately. It was a plastic bag filled with lots of stuff. There was a story in there called Jakey, and this story was referencing a 19-year-old boy named Jake Allen who had died under some questionable circumstances i guess you could say uh, mm -hmm. before dennis planted this package i believe this boy committed suicide that's what the authorities believed mm -hmm. but dennis wrote this story named jakey trying to take credit for his death oh wow okay dennis said in this letter quote jakey had fantasies about sexual masturbation in unusual ways with bondage and homosexual thrills while i pecked this out my sparky is going hard end quote <laughs> Yeah, I and, just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Right, like, what the fuck? Dennis admitted later that this was all bullshit, that he, of course, had nothing to do with his case. He just wanted the shock reaction from the authorities, basically. Yeah, because it's all a twisted little manipulation mind game. It's a game to him. It's a game. And that's something to know, too. Like, when he initially saw this ad in the paper that a book was going to get made about his story and he felt like it was inaccurate and he mm -hmm. wanted to write a letter to like set things straight well it went from that to where it turned into a full-blown game dennis was convinced in his mind that all of these officers were his buddies and they were just having a great time playing this game with him that's literally how he viewed it that is quite literally how he viewed it it was a game wow on october 22nd 2004 a UPS driver found a plastic bag with a manila envelope inside of it during one of his pickups at the Omni Center in Wichita. It was labeled BTK Filled Gram. 
Inside this envelope were pictures of children who had bindings and other things drawn all over them. And he also included a half-accurate, half-false autobiography that he wrote about himself. Like, he put some details on there that were true and some Mm -hmm. that weren't because he was trying to mislead the police. Right. In December of 2004, Dennis called in a bomb threat to get some attention. He didn't actually have a bomb More so, he just wanted his latest package to be discovered. This is how much of a child he is and an attention seeker. So this package he was referencing was a Special K cereal box labeled Bomb Threat. And yes, before you say anything, this stupid fuck used cereal boxes as clues because he was a serial killer. Bomb Threat on a cereal K box. So cereal killer and BTK. Yes. <laughs> okay. So when Lame. this when this package was found, inside of it there were pages that contained extremely graphic details from the murder of Nancy Fox. There was a gagged Barbie doll with its hands tied behind its back with a bag over its head, and attached to the feet of this doll was Nancy Fox's driver's license. Not a photocopy, but her actual driver's license that he had kept for decades. Holy shit. Yeah. Chilling as fuck. And all this is going on and wifey just has no idea. His kids have no idea. His church congregation has no No idea. No one. And no one knew that he had a body in the church. That's what blows me. That I'm No one knew. No one knew anything. mm. So January twenty fifth, two thousand four. Cake TV received another package, and this was a postcard asking if a cereal box that he left in town had been found. He was seeing if anyone had found this, basically. Right. So when he sent this package, he listed the return address as S. Killett, 803 North Edgemore, Wichita, which if you don't remember, that was the Otero's home address, 803 oh, Edgemore. Oh, my God, it was. So this box was found pretty quickly after, you know, he sent this postcard. He gave some clues on how to find it. It was leaning against a road sign for North Seneca, Mm. and it had another Barbie doll in it. This doll was bound with rope around its neck, and the rope was attached to a small section of PVC pipe. This doll was meant to represent Josephine Otero. Because he hanged her from a pipe, if you remember that gnarly uh, tidbit from part one. I hate that. He also had a slip of paper in there labeled PJ Little Max 11574, which is the date of the Otero family murders. And he also left clues as to where to find his next cereal box. Okay, so we have... We (laughs) said, I am... Done. Done. Like the look on your face right now, you said, okay. <laughs> I wish we just close it out now. It, thanks for following us. You know, find us on Facebook. Right. <laughs> okay, guys, you can find us on our socials. It's We're fu- done. It's fucking crazy. Again, this is really hard to grasp that it's real because it just sounds so far out there, but it's real. This man really did this. I'm. I'm just thinking about the mental repercussions of the shock, like just the fear and the shock and people being afraid to walk down the street because all of this shit is being found. The police are like running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Yeah, this man literally. Nobody's feeling safe. He terrorized 
BTK struck fear into this community in 1974 when he murdered the Oteros. And here we are in 2004 and he just pops up after so long and he's doing this shit. Like, w Wichita was fucking terrified. I could not imagine any of this. Also in early January of 2005, Dennis Rader was elected president of church council at the Christ Lutheran Church. And eight days after that, he left another Special K cereal box in the bed of a random pickup truck in the parking lot of the Home Depot store located at 3350 North Woodlawn Boulevard in Wichita. Not the Home Depot. Yeah, this was the box that he had given instructions to find in his last package. So police officers and detectives go to that Home Depot store. They're asking all of the employees and everyone if they had found a cereal box. And it turns out that there was an employee there who found a cereal box in the back of his truck that was labeled BTK Bomb. And he thought someone was fucking with him, so he threw it away at his house. Like, he went home, found it, and was like, what the fuck is this? So he threw it away. Luckily, though, within that next week... The police started putting up flyers asking Home Depot employees from that location to keep an eye out for a mysterious cereal box. And this guy, he went on vacation for a few days, like came back. Right. He saw the flyer and he realized, holy shit, I had a, a strange cereal box sitting in my truck and right. it clicked. So he ran outside and somehow he looked in the trash and it was still there. He went out so he didn't, like, I guess, move his trash cans or whatever to be picked up. Right. So it sat there. So he found it, called the police, and then he immediately turned over the box. And in this box was a list of details regarding some of his new possible projects. And Dennis also included a small letter to the police. And this is going to fucking take you. Because when I tell you that, that this absolutely just fucking took my breath away for oh. no other reason other than how stupid he is because you hear all of this shit that we've talked about all of the calculation the word puzzles leaving clues the way he's torturing these people in this town you think that wow there's little glimpses holy shit you're scary you may be smart but then this next part just takes that all away and it's like oh nope you're a fucking idiot and you just fumbled your way into everything so he put <laughs> he put a letter in this cereal box asking the police that if he sent a floppy disk, would he be able to communicate that way without it being traced back to him? The letter actually said, quote, Can I communicate with floppy disks and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. What the? <laughs> Miscellaneous section 494, in parentheses, Rex, it will be okay. Run it for a few days in case I'm out of town, etc. I will try a floppy for a test run in the near future, February or March. So let me break that down. When he said, Rex, it will be okay, Dennis was saying that he wanted the police to respond to his question about the floppy disk by putting it in the paper saying, Rex, it will be okay. That was going to be code for the police to put in for him to read to know if it was okay to send a floppy or not. He's thinking. <laughs> he said, be honest with me now. Can I do this and it be okay? If so, be honest with me. Put it in the paper and I'll read it. And then I'll send it to you right away. So Dennis, in his mind, he's thinking that they're his friends. He's thinking that they're genuinely going to be honest with him, that they're going to follow the rules. He's not thinking about anything else. 
So when the police got this, I could imagine they were like, are you like <laughs> fucking kidding me? What do you mean? Can you send a floppy disk and it not and it not be traced? And what do you mean? Be honest, Dennis. What do you mean by uh, that? OK. All right. All right. All right. I'm done. But wait, it gets better. It gets what better. The- so when the police got that, they obviously put the ad in the paper saying, Rex, it will be okay. They put they literally put that in the paper and then they waited. Oh yeah, they got his ass. Police also looked at the surveillance footage from the parking lot of that Home Depot store to see if they could, you know, maybe see who put that cereal box in the back of this guy's truck. Uh-huh. And even though the film was grainy and they couldn't quite make out who the person was, they did find that the person who dumped the cereal box was driving a black Jeep Cherokee. So they had a vehicle identified. Oh. On February 3rd, 2005, Cake TV received another postcard from Dennis. And in this postcard, he told them how much he appreciated the police being honest with him about the floppy disk. And he said that he would send it soon because they put in the paper, Rex, right. it will be OK. So yeah. he took it as, oh, they're telling me I can send it and it not be traced. Thanks so much for being oh, honest with me. I appreciate oh it. God. I'm going to send that to you right away. Thanks. And I it, so look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> I do. I so look forward to hearing from you. And it was on February 16th, 2005, that Cake TV received a package containing a purple floppy disk. Dennis <sighs> had used the computer at his church to make this floppy disk and he sent it in. So as soon as the police got their hands on it, they gave it to their IT guy. He popped it into his computer and he saw that the disk came from a man named Dennis at Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita. (laughs) And a very simple Internet search revealed that the president of the Christ Lutheran Church was a man named Dennis Dennis Rader. So now they had a name. We we done come full circle. Can you believe we that shit? Out, we started out with some some hick ass attention seeking, just horrible shit, fuckery to to some huge saw type manipulation bullshit, terror amongst this whole town, this whole community for and thirty then, years, and then and there then was the disc. disc, and then there was the floppy disc. I will never get over that. So, please tell me, can I send this and it not be traced? Just be honest. Be honest with me. Tell me. I will never get over that shit. I swear. <laughs> so, now that they had a name and a in the church and they had that the whole car. connection. Right. Yeah. None of that was concrete enough in terms of making an arrest. It was pretty convincing, but they needed a little more. So, get this shit. They got smart. From the Otero crime scene and the Nancy Fox crime scene, semen had been collected by police. Because if you remember, Dennis left semen at his crime scenes. Yeah. But in the 70s, DNA testing was in its infancy. So in spite of that, the police still kept these samples in case something changed. And underneath the uh, fingernails of Vicki Weggerly, there was also DNA. Because remember, she She fought him and she scratched him right. So all of these DNA samples had been saved for decades just in case the off chance came that they would have someone to test those samples against. They preserved everything and kept it. And that ultimately is what broke this case, technically. So after a little digging into Dennis Rader, 
the police got access to Dennis's daughter, Carrie's medical files, and they used her DNA to test against the crime scene DNA, and it was a match. Wow. This 100% concluded that the president of Christ Lutheran and Boy Scout leader, Dennis Rader, was BTK. And after years and years and years and years and years, they finally got him. They finally had enough to figure out who he was and to arrest him. What? It is crazy. What a, what a turnaround and what a way to catch somebody. Like <laughs> It's wild. To think that, okay, so your children, your family life that you loved so much ended up being your downfall. Over a floppy disk. I mean, it's wild. Again, for the 500th time, none of this even seems real. So with all of this information gathered, the DNA was a match. It was February 25th, 2005, that Dennis Rader was on his way home for his lunch break, and he was surrounded by police and arrested. They saw him driving his black Jeep Cherokee, Uh the same one that they identified in the Home Depot video. Uh Uh-huh. So upon his arrest and a search of his home, they also found all of the contents of his hidey holes. They found his Polaroids and his slick ads, which if I didn't bring that up yet, the slick ads were index cards that he made where he'd paste pictures of various women from magazines that he would cut out. He would put them on these cards and then he would draw bindings and gags and all kinds of other fucked up shit on them. And then he kept them. He called them his slick ads. So police found all of this, and he was immediately taken into custody. His wife, Paula, immediately divorced him. She actually asked for an emergency divorce, and it was granted the next day. Wow. She immediately left him and was like, fuck this. It was immediate. Good on her. She wasted no time. So now BTK was caught. And it would be July 27th, 2005, that Dennis Rader appeared in court with Judge Gregory Waller presiding. On this day, Dennis entered a plea of guilty. And the guilty plea tossed out the need for a drawn-out trial. So basically, it kind of sent everything straight into the sentencing phase. Right. So during this court appearance, Dennis confessed in brutal detail to all 10 of his murders. He detailed his plans, his methods everything he went about describing these things as if they were normal mundane everyday activities like if you watch his confession footage Mm -hmm. it is chilling because he just you would think it would be it was like someone describing how they went to the grocery store and got a bag of chips and then came back home like that type of shit he was just so nonchalant about it what the so he tells all of this to the judge And the family members of the victims were also allowed to speak during this time. They were allowed to tell the courts of everything they had lost and all of the suffering they endured when BTK murdered their loved ones. Because most of his murders were unsolved for, well, all of his murders, actually, because his last murder was 19. yeah. Yeah, his last murder was 1991. He didn't get arrested until 2005. So all of his murders were unsolved for so long yeah so so long it is just absolutely heartbreaking to think about so when his sentencing phase took place it was august 18th 2005 and it was a two-day process and judge waller found dennis raider guilty of 10 counts of first degree murder for the deaths of julie 
Joseph, Joseph Jr., and Josephine Otero, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vianne, Nancy Fox, Maureen Hedge, Vicki Wegerly, and Dolores Davis. And Dennis was given the maximum sentence possible, which was 10 consecutive life sentences. He has to serve a minimum of 175 years before he's eligible for parole. Under the jail. Under the jail. Today, Dennis Rader is 78 years old, and he's serving his time in solitary confinement at the El Dorado Correctional Facility located in El Dorado, Kansas. And even though Dennis has been behind bars for nearly 20 years now, the nightmares and the pain he caused will never go away for some. The families of the innocent people he killed may have closure in some form, knowing that the man responsible for killing their loved ones is behind bars. But the question of why, as well as the absence of their family members, will never truly go away, even with the passing of time. Right. And not only were the families of BTK's victims deeply affected and forever changed by his actions, but his own family also carries a weight and a loss of their own, especially his children. I mentioned this book in part one, but I just want to bring it up again because I think it's appropriate. But in 2019, 14 years after the arrest of her father, Carrie published her own book called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming. And in this book, she tells her story of what she lost when she found out that her loving best friend dad was also the BTK killer. She talks about the personal hell that she endured. And I think it's really, really powerful. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes uh, for this episode as well, just in case you guys want to check that out. But I want to end this episode with an audio clip. Uh, I sampled this from an interview special that Carrie did with PBS Kansas News Station in Mm -hmm. 2019. I'm also going to leave a link for the full thing in the show notes if you would like to check it out. And I'm going to play that for you now. I lost myself. I lost myself when my dad was arrested. I was being told and the national media pounded as BTK's daughter. We want an interview with BTK's daughter. You look at all the headlines even today. If you were if you were to Google me, it's BTK's daughter. It's not Carrie Rawson. My book, it's called A Serial Killer's Daughter. Like I pushed back against that title, but they were like, that's what you are. It took, you know, more than a decade to be able to say, I'm BTK's daughter. I'm a serial killer's daughter. This is my reality. Now, how do I live and how do I function? And what do I do with that for good? You know, I've learned how to talk about it how to look people in the eye. So that's better. I mean, I can sit here, I can talk about it openly. So in many ways, I'm, I'm healed in those ways, but I don't think I'll ever be fully healed and I don't think the story will ever be over. And that will conclude the final and second part of BTK Good Fucking Grief. I am so happy that we're at the end of this. I want this man out of my brain. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a rank of one. (laughs) Zero out of ten. Do not recommend. So, yeah. Like, he is so lame. Right. I mean, it's definitely. Like, I have nothing to say. I have nothing (laughs) to say. I literally. Listen. Listen. Just it's the inside crickets, of my brain right now. Just crickets. Yeah, it's yeah. just crickets. It's the inside of my brain right now because, like, as the story was going along, yeah, I was piecing stuff together. 
But then that that twist with the fucking address and the in the the word puzzles, all and- of it. All of it. The cereal boxes, the Barbie dolls, the pictures. He really, <laughs> he builds you up to think that he may be. Some mastermind. Some mastermind, but then the fucking, I mean, there's more than one point that I could technically make this point with, but the fucking floppy disk, my It's guy? like, that part got me. Let, me. let me just ask you a question. <laughs> if I if I want to send a floppy disk, <laughs> if I, if I want to communicate with y'all, can that be traced? Just be honest. <laughs> Just tell me the truth. Be honest. Tell what? me, Rex, it will be okay. What the fuck did he think was going to happen? I mean, obviously, he was in Delulu land, let's be honest, but like, whoa. Well, it's like I said, and I'll leave it at this. It's, it's something that just blows my mind, is that through his communications with the police, as I said earlier, it was a game. He was convinced that these police officers were his buddies, were his friends. He could not imagine that they would lie to him. And even when he got caught, they arrested him. They brought him in. He gave over 30 hours of confession. They just brought him in and he just talked and talked. And he specifically said in his interrogation, he was like, I can't believe y'all lied to me. <laughs> he was like, I thought we were, I thought we had a bond. I thought we were playing a game and you fucking lied to me. <laughs> That is not even me. That's what your bitch ass gets, bro. I'm not even trying to be funny. He dead ass was just so shocked that they had lied to him. He was like, I thought y'all were my friends. We've been writing back and forth for years. Oh, and you lied to me. Yeah, that part got me. But you know what? The baby part that. Yeah. Uh, I'm done. I'm done. Oh, and another little end note that I want to make, and then I'll tie this whole episode out, but I thought this was very, very touching. I didn't really include it in my notes, um, but I did want to make it a point. But Charlie Otero, who was the oldest surviving Otero child, and uh, Steve, Shirley Vian's child that Dennis followed home, Mm -hmm. you know, Steve and Charlie are like best friends. They're like brothers. Oh, yeah, they 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 met, they talked, they kind of like got to know each other. They shared that grief of BTK taking their family. So now uh, Charlie and Steve, they basically have like this crazy great brother bond. They they talk all the time. They hang out. They fish. They they've given interviews together like they became brothers, basically. I love that. And I them. hate I hate the circumstance, obviously. Right. But the fact that they found each other and could kind of lean on one another and just kind of go through life. I mean, I just thought that was very inspiring. It's just it's inspiring, but it's also profound that sometimes you just even out of tragedy, good things can come. I mean, you got to take the good things out of it. If silver linings, silver linings. So that is uh, I don't really have much else to say. I think we've pretty much made it clear how I feel about this throughout the episode. I know you guys are ready to be done. I'm ready to be done. So, if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, you can totally do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And we're just going to leave this part blank because we're not using Twitter or X anymore. We're going to say that for the third week in a row. And until next time. Bye. Bye. Are you afraid? You should be.